First John. We're looking at half of First John this summer, and we're going to look at the second half next summer. Uh, uh, we're actually we're just going to do this week and next week, um, and then in uh, August. Uh, for three weeks in August, I'll be doing a, a series on a, a biblical worldview of marriage. So it'll be three weeks uh, looking at first creation. What does creation have to say about marriage? What does the fall have to say about marriage? What is redemption and consummation? The kind of storyline of the Bible, how does that inform how we view marriage, how we do marriage uh, in our church and as Christians? So uh, so that, that's what's ahead, but we've got a couple more weeks in First John. This week, we're in chapter 2, starting in verse 18. And uh, just, just to put this, this passage in context for a second, um, if you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, we talked about the question of assurance, of how, you know, how do I know that I'm really a Christian? And uh, he says there's kind of two tests. There's one test of do you love people? Have, has the gospel hit you in a way that, so that you've actually started loving people? Has it changed your heart towards people? But, and especially Christians, if you started to love Christians. That's one test. The other test is kind of the doctrinal test, which we're looking at today of what do you believe? There's uh, you know basic belief that we've embraced Christ. And so uh, our, our, um, that's the passage that we're looking at today. And so uh, this is God's uh, uh, word uh, to you because uh, he is your teacher. Let's pray together. Uh, let's read together. Chapter 2, verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. The anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are our teacher, and you, are the, uh, you have given your spirit to lead us into all truth. Give us hearts that love truth, that love the things that your word says. Give us hearts that want to dig into your word and study it. And there's nothing greater that we could give our minds and our hearts to than the study of our maker, the great God who has made this world. And so uh, I pray that you would give us a love for your teaching, the teaching of your word. And um, I pray that your spirit would come and uh, take your perfect holy word and through... uh, Uh, your servant a sinner. You would take your perfect word and communicate to your people to their hearts and that you'd lead us into repentance and faith um, that we might worship our Savior Jesus. So uh, we thank you for your word now in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, the topic that we're looking at 
this week then is the topic of doctrine, which is, I think for many people, possibly the most unattractive thing about Christianity is that it's dogmatic, that there are these doctrines, there are these certain narrow beliefs that Christians have that they expect everyone else to believe. And so that's what makes, that doctrine is the thing that kind of makes you know, uh, Christians rigid and judgmental, and it, 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 it's not about the experience of God, it's about knowing these certain things. So many people say, uh, listen, let's just do away with all the doctrine, and it's more about the experience of God. Let's just experience God, and people experience God in different ways. And so, um, as a result, it, it's a f- very common in, uh, you know, we've all encountered the, the idea that really there aren't any uh, true, there's no one true religion. You know, all the religions are the same. There aren't any absolute truths. It's really, uh, you know, whatever religion works for you is, is the religion you should do, and we shouldn't be judging uh, that any religions are wrong. And, uh, you know, of course, that, uh, that idea, it sounds very loving. It sounds very inclusive, very all-embracing. It's like, wow, I mean, how could you, you know, is there any way that you could love more people than by saying everyone, everyone's embraced, everyone's in? Is there any other, any other way? Well, a couple of problems with that. I mean, one obvious problem is, of course, not all religions are true. You know, if, if a leader gives poisonous Kool-Aid to all his followers so that they commit suicide, you know, I don't think I'm being arrogant to say we got a better thing going than that, okay? I think you're doing a better job. This, what we're doing here is better than that. Uh, so on the one hand, all religions are not uh, equally the same. Um, but on the other hand, um, when you say that all religions are the same, every belief system is the same, there's a doctrine. That's a doctrine. That's a dogma. And, you know, you, you, if you claim to say, I embrace everyone's beliefs, you're going to embrace everyone's belief until you meet a, a uh, fundamentalist, <laughs> uh, intolerant fundamentalist. And I assure you, if you believe you should be tolerant of everyone, when you come across an intolerant fundamentalist, you're not going to be tolerant of what they believe. What you believe is anyone who agrees with you that all beliefs are the same then you agree with them. And anyone who disagrees with you that all, all the beliefs are tolerant, then you disagree with them. And it's equally as dogmatic. And uh, there's, you know, G.K. Chesterton, I put a little quote for you in, on page three of your bulletin. Uh, G.K. Chesterton says this, there are two kinds of people in the world, the conscious dogmatist and the unconscious dogmatist. I have always found myself that the unconscious dogmatists were by far the most dogmatic. So, uh, that's what happens, is there are hidden dogmas. And when you say, I'm tolerant of everyone, there's a hidden dogma in there that we hold on to very rigorously, and that we hold everyone in the world to, and if anyone disagrees with us, we get very angry at them, and we become very intolerant of them. And so, um, everyone has a doctrine, everyone has a dogma that they believe everyone in the world should believe in. Everyone has one. And it's terribly important that you get the right <laughs> dogmas. The right dogmas is very important. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis gives a good illustration of this. You know, because a lot of times we'll say, well, it really matters that you have good intentions. You know, it's okay if someone's beliefs aren't right, but as long as their heart's in the right place. And he says, well, you know, imagine you're on the edge of the Sahara Desert and uh, you encounter some guy who's been, you know, he's on his camel and he's starving to death and he's all bones and you can see his ribs. And you say, wow, this poor guy's starving. 
I love this guy. You know, and you bring him in and you make him a big T-bone steak and you say, hey, eat up. <laughs> that sounds like a very generous thing to be doing, but that would not, you'd kill him. And he'd be dead at the end of that meal. Uh, that's not what he needs. And it turns out that you, good intentions aren't enough. You actually have to believe right things about the world if you're actually going to love people well and if you're going to live well in the world. And so that's why the Bible insists that we have to have true beliefs about God. We have to think about who is God and how has he made his world and how do we live in it. And so uh, we need doctrines. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's true that God is infinite, God is eternal, God is incomprehensible for us. We'll never understand everything about God. But we can't take that as an excuse because there are some things he has told us about himself. And the things he has told us, we need to grab onto those things. And we need to devote our hearts to them and study them and, and guard them. And so that's what we have in this passage. Um, you know, another one of these lines where John is sharing with these churches in Ephesus. He's writing to a group of churches that he kind of oversees in Ephesus. Part of his heart in writing this letter to them, he says in verse 26 there, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Uh, there's someone, there is a group of, uh, of teachers, false teachers, actually what's happening in this church is apparently there are some false teachers who are teaching some false doctrines, and now they've left the church, and they're kind of starting a cult somewhere, and they're trying to get people in the church to go with them and start this other cult. And, uh, and he's saying, listen, you, ha you have the Spirit, you have the Word of God, don't be deceived by them. Uh, listen to what they're saying and find out if it's true. And so what we're going to do uh, this morning is we're going to look at a couple aspects of the topic of doctrine, why it's important. And uh, we're going to look at two things. First of all, we're going to look at the nature of false doctrine. Um, what are, you know, at least in this context, what are, what are the marks of false doctrine? Uh, what are some things that we should be aware of, things that we're looking for? Second of all, what is the path to true doctrine? Okay, what are... The, uh, what are the, um, the nature of false doctrine and the path to true doctrine? These are the two things we're going to look at. But I, I need to take a little moment uh, because this passage has a few things that may raise questions for some of you that's not really at the heart of what I'm talking about. So I want to just take a few minutes to address some of these few things. And it's in the first verse that I read there in verse 18. You may have caught that. It says, Children, it is the last hour... And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So I just want to, there's two words in there, last hour and Antichrist. I want to just talk about what those mean for a moment. Uh, first of all, the word last hour, what does that mean? It kind of sounds like when he says, to my little children, it's the last hour, that he is saying, children, it's, the end of the world is coming. I mean, at least for me my first reading for some reason that's how I understand that the end of the world is coming soon and so many people read that and said well listen they were wrong this is 2,000 years ago the end of the world didn't, didn't come and actually you know, that phrase last hour is the only place that, that, that it appears in the New Testament and, uh, but there are other phrases kind of like it where it talks about uh, the, the last days or the last time uh, and it's the word last there is the word eschatos. It's where, you know, if you've ever heard the word eschatology, is, is about the study of, of end times or end things. And uh, what is it talking about? Well, one of the things, in order for us to get what he's saying, uh, we have to understand that John understand, understood the church, understood Jesus, understand his own spiritual life in the context of the story of the Old Testament. And the story of the Old Testament, one way to think of what the Old Testament is, is it's a story that was looking for an ending. 
It was a story that, that uh, the, the end of the Old Testament, there was this great longing for the great king that God had promised, the, the Messiah who was going to come, and he was going to draw all nations to himself to come and worship God, and he was going to bring peace to the world. And um, so the Old Testament is a story looking for an ending, and when it talks about the last days, the end times, the, uh, uh, the last hour, it's the end of the story. And what John is saying is that we as Christians, what we're doing right now is we're living in the end of the story. The end of the story has happened. And you know, you might, you know, you read the Old Testament about the Messiah bringing all the nations to come and worship God, and you, you kind of picture it as happening really quickly. But it turns out it takes a while to get all the nations to come and worship God, and that's happening right now, right? So we have Christians in every nation that are drawing. We're living in the end of the story where the Messiah is drawing all people to himself. So that's all he's saying. The, the, the last hour is now. We're in it. We're in, we're in the final scene. And, uh, but the second thing is this word, uh, Antichrist. Um, now, I know many of you are visiting, so, uh, and there are many different views on, on this word Antichrist, so I'm going I'm to tell you what, uh, what I think this is talking about. Um, it's very common, uh, especially, I think, it, I think, I don't know in other parts of the world, but at least in American Christianity, to understand the Antichrist is some figure who, at the end of history, is going to come up and he's going to be kind of a world leader who's going to uh, deceive all kinds of people uh, right before Jesus comes back. And uh, the, the where that idea comes from is because, you know, I just read you that one little verse. You know, that's a lot to get out of this little verse. This is basically the only place that Antichrist appears. It also appears in chapter 4 in a similar passage to this. And then in Second John, chapter 7, that's the only place the word Antichrist appears. So you're like, how do you get world leader out of these little passages? And uh, the, re- the where that comes from is that uh, many people have taken different passages... through the bio- Throughout the Bible, so in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Jesus talks about false Christ and false prophets, and he talks a little bit about them, and then a revelation, it talks about the beast who's going to be coming, and so the idea is that, that all of these different texts are talking about the same thing or same person, and I, really, I, don't, I don't think it really works that way, um, because on the one hand, the false prophets, the false Christ that Jesus talks about, all around uh, the, the hundred years before and the hundred years after Jesus' life, there were all kinds of literal false Christs. People who came saying they were the Messiah, they were going to take on the Romans, and they were going to uh, liberate the Jews from the oppression of the Romans. And, uh, and they were false Christs, that his disciples were going to be tempted to go fight against the Romans. He says, that's not what I'm doing. And the beast, the beast is a is a pagan. You know, the false Christ or Jews, the beast is a pagan. A pagan uh, ruler who uh, was oppressing God's people was very likely Nero, who, was, uh, who persecuted the church in, in the first century. And here, the Antichrist is not, a, is not a false Christ or a pagan, you know, Caesar or something like that. The Antichrist, these are teachers in a church, church like these, who are uh, teaching false doctrine. They've gone and they started a cult. And uh, that, you can see that in, the, in uh, verse 19 where it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us, these antichrists. And so, um, that's just it. let me just say one more thing about antichrists, uh, in, in case you don't believe me. Uh, note that it doesn't say in verse 18, the antichrist. It just says, as you have heard, that antichrist is coming. And in chapter 4, if you just turn over your page there, it says in verse 2, Every spirit, uh, oh, sorry, uh, verse 3, when every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now into the world already. So the spirit of teachers who say that Jesus is not the Christ, he's not God 
God become incarnate and come among us, that's Antichrist. And so there's been Antichrist throughout the history of the church, uh, throughout the history of the world. There's Antichrist now, there were Antichrist then, there have been Antichrist uh, throughout. So, whew, there we go. Little, uh, little bit about last hours and Antichrist. If you have more questions, feel free to come and, and ask me about them. So, two things we're looking at is uh, the nature of false doctrine and the path to true doctrine. So first, the nature of false doctrine, and um, two comments from this passage. First of all, John points out that false doctrine, false teaching that we need to watch out for, comes from within the church. Okay, so you see that there in verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. So he's talking about the Antichrist. Well, let me read the whole verse 18. Children is the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, many false teachers. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of, uh, were not of us. So they were a part of the church. And uh, one of the things that that tells us is that false teaching, the fact that it's going to come from within a Christian context, is it's going to sound true. It's, you know, false teaching is going to have all kinds of words that sound like Christian words, you know, Christianese. It's going to be colored with Christian language. So you say, well, gosh, this sounds like you know, we're using all the right words, but they actually mean very different things. And uh, so, for example, you know, in the last century, uh, the, in, in, you know, in the West, uh, Many uh, Christians were saying, listen, modern people can't believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that you know, Jesus' body rose from the dead, that uh, he did miracles, that, you know, that Jesus' blood forgives all of our sins. We live 2,000 years later. I mean, who can really believe all that? And so you say, what we need to do is we need to modify Christian belief. We need to accommodate so that, so that a modern person could still become a Christian and not have to believe in any of that kind of stuff. So they would say things like, well, I believe in the resurrection. You say, well, you believe in the resurrection. That sounds very Christian. But then they say, well, what I mean by Jesus' resurrection was I believe that after he died, his disciples came together and they had one experience in their hearts that Jesus was still, the spirit of Jesus was still going to happen and continue through them. And he's been resurrected. And that's what resurrection is. Whereas... You know, if you really study the word resurrection, it means it couldn't have meant anything else except Jesus' body was raised and restored to full life. And so it sounds, uh, it sounds Christian because they say, I believe in the resurrection, but what do you mean by the resurrection? And so one of the things is that false teaching primarily happens within the church in Christian language. And I'll tell you that one of the things that makes that troubling is that it's very subtle and therefore, there has to be a certain sense of theological precision that we have to do as a church. And I, that's uncomfortable for some people. You know, like nitpicking about theology, and I understand that. There, there's ways to nitpick about theology that can be uh, very divisive, and uh, you're constantly trying to tear other Christians down. And yet there's another sense where we have to, be, we have to guard the truth. And that's what he's saying to them. I write to, you these, write to you these things so that you will not be deceived. And you're going to be hearing things that sound Christian, but you've got to ask, what do they really mean? And, um, and so you have within the church people who are using Christian language and who are uh, actually not themselves Christians. Now, let me, I need to do another little side. I know this is my third one already in the sermon. A little side here. Uh, this passage is, is a passage that's one of the main passages for understanding the doctrine of the visible and the invisible church. 
I, I don't know if that's a new language to many of you, but uh, this was, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what that means. Uh, it, this is a helpful distinction that on the one hand, the church, there's a visible church, right? Like all of you here are, you know, are most, you know, most of you here, some of you may not be uh, professing Christians. You say, I'm a Christian. And so um, the, the visible church is all the Christians in the world who say, I'm a Christian, and, uh, and their children and their families that make up kind of these bodies of, of believers around the world. That's a visible church. It's kind of the historic church. The invisible church is all the people throughout history who have really loved Jesus, who, who belonged to Jesus, who God gave to Jesus, and uh, who have lived in every nation, have lived in every time, and who will be with Jesus in heaven. And so what that means is that there's a, dis, there's a sense in which not everyone who's in the visible church is actually part of the invisible church. That's what he's saying, is they went out from us, right? They were a part of us. They were here. But, uh, uh, but they... They showed themselves to not be true Christians because they left, because they weren't a part. Of, uh, they didn't continue with us, and um, and so that's the case with the Antichrist in this passage. Is they they have the name Christian, and yet um, they're leading people astray. And so this is um, read this again in verse nineteen. They they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, one of, the, one of the things this may sound like is, okay, there's a church disagreement, and there's a group of people who left, and they went and they started their own church. And it, you know, it kind of sounds like a denomination, right? We have all these denominations, we have all these divisions uh, among the church, and um, but there's something different happening here because you know many of you are visiting from other parts of the country and we're a Presbyterian church and some of you may be Baptist or non-denomination or some other denomination from around, around the country and yet as you come here we're going to share this meal together and uh, we're going to together come to the Lord's table as brothers and sisters of Christ and I say even if you're a Baptist you're not you're not of a we're of one family we're, we're, uh, we're both uh, Christians we both belong to Jesus and the reason for that, you say, well, what's the difference? What's the difference between these antichrists, who they want to go start their own church, and, you know, these ba- you know, Baptists, who I come and say, hey, brothers and sisters, let's come and uh, we'll study God's word together, we'll eat God's supper together. Uh, you're my brothers and sisters. What's the difference? Well, this uh, is the second uh, thing about the nature of false doctrine. It's not just that it, it comes from within the church, but the false doctrine attacks Jesus. It's the, the main, you know, you might say heresies, or, or the, the things that break fellowship, that make someone not a Christian, are primarily the doctrines that go after Jesus. And um, that's why they're called Antichrists, right? That's their name, is Antichrist. They're, they're, they're against Jesus. And, uh, and you see that there in verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. That's the spirit of Antichrist, saying that Jesus is not the Christ. He who denies the Father and the Son. And so, um, false doctrine attacks Jesus. And uh, let me just, if you turn over to to, uh, chapter 4 again, verse 2, it says this, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. You hear that? That Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is, uh, is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist which you heard was coming is now into the world. And so the main basic belief, the main problem of serious like false teaching is attacking this idea that Jesus is God come in the flesh. And so uh, that's why 
if you know people from different denominations are here, we say, well, we share this basic Christian belief that Jesus is God. He's come in the flesh. He's died for our sins. He, his body was raised from the dead. Now he's seated at the right hand of God, and he's been given authority over all nations. We share that fundamental gospel belief, and that's why we share this meal together. And so that's also why Christians have consistently said things like, um, you know, like uh, Muslims and, and Mormons and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. Because even though uh, Christians among themselves have all kinds of d- different beliefs, they're united on this one belief about Jesus. And But if, you know, a Mormon does not, says that Jesus is not the God, he's a God. Uh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses would say that Jesus was the first creature that God, you know, the first and highest creature that God made. He's, a, he's like a, the archangel or something. And, uh, but not that he's God. He's not God incarnate. And Islam says that Jesus was a, a very good prophet, but he's not God. And so it's on that fundamental belief, that's what John is saying, this is what unites Christians. This is what defines a Christian, is their belief about Jesus. And, uh, and John says here, verse 23, read this again, uh, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. You must have Jesus if you want to get to God. Now, some people might wonder, you say, why is that so important? Why, it seems very narrow. The one guy, this one doctrine of belief is the only way that you're going to get to Jesus. Why make things so narrow? You know, why can't all kinds of people come to God in, in different ways? They all have experiences of God. Why, why do we have to go through Jesus? And, uh, you know, actually my, my mom just became a Christian. She's in her 70s uh, about a year, year and a half ago. And uh, this was something that she, you know, we had maybe thousands of hours of conversations about Jesus in the Bible. And, uh, and one of her main complaints was she says, listen, I don't need to go through Jesus to get to God. I have direct access, all right? <laughs> I have a straight shot. I don't need to go through Jesus. And so I told her, I said, well, listen, let's imagine that you came over to my house and um, you, you know, maybe you're in the other room and you hear my wife say to me, hey, listen, I keep finding your shoes all over the floor in all the rooms in the living room. Can you please, you know, pick them up? You know, when you take your shoes off, just put them away. This is, this has never happened. This is a hypothetical situation and my wife would have to tell me that. But, uh, um, so she says to me, and so uh, you kind of overhear that and we go into my living room, I pop off my shoes, throw them on the floor and you say, you know, hey, I just heard your wife say to you, you know, don't throw your, your, your shoes all over the floor, or your shoes all over the floor. And I say to you, you know, well, listen, I, I know she said that. I know that's what her words said. I have, I have direct access, though. I don't, I don't have to go through her words. Uh, I, I, can, I got a straight shot through her heart, and it turns out she doesn't actually care if I put my shoes on the ground. What would you say? You don't have a direct shot. The direct shot is her words. What she said, you've got to go through the word. You've got to go through the thing that she said. And if I say I have a direct shot, what am I doing? I'm not dealing with the real Shannon. I'm dealing with a figment of my imagination. I'm projecting onto her who I want her to be. And when we try to go around Jesus and we say, I have a direct shot, Jesus is the Word of God. He is God's uh, the ex- express image of who God is. You can't go around Him. And any time we're going around Him, what we're doing is we're projecting onto God who we want Him to be, who fits into our box, who says all the things we want Him to say, who says, I don't have to take my shoes off. And, uh, and Jesus says, Jesus is the expression of who I am. He is my declaration, my action of who I am. 
And, uh, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis, when uh, he, he got married very late in his life and uh, just was married for a short time to a woman uh, who, who had cancer. And um, after she died, he wrote a, a diary that was later published called The Grief Observed. And one of the things that he said about his wife, he was thinking about the memory of his wife. What was she like? And this is what he wrote. All reality is iconoclast. The, the earthly beloved, even in this life, incessantly triumphs over your mere idea of her. The real person triumphs over who you think she is. So, and, uh, and you wanted to. You want her with all her resistances, all her faults, all her unexpectedness. That is, in her first square and independent reality. And this, not any image or memory, is what we are to love still after she is dead. What he's saying is when you get married, you find a person that does all the things that you didn't want them to do. <laughs> they were un they're unexpected to you, and God is that way as well. And when you come to find who God is, he's going to say all kinds of things that rub you wrong and that are uncomfortable for you. And we have to embrace those things. We have to let him speak for himself and not project onto him uh, who we want him to be. And that's why the importance of doctrine... Doctrine is, say, is us embracing God's rough edges and letting them be uncomfortable for us and saying, listen, I'm not going to shape God into my image. I need to let him speak for himself. And that this, the, that's why the essence of false doctrine is going after Jesus, because Jesus is the express image of who God is. Okay? So these are the two things. What is the nature of false doctrine? On the one hand, it comes from within the church in Christian language, and it will usually show itself most uh, radically in an attack on Jesus, on the person of who Jesus is, okay? So, what then, how do we guard it? How do we, what is the path to true do doctrine? What do we hold on to? And um, I, I think this passage gives us two things. The first is, the path to true doctrine is through the apostolic word. So by apostolic, I mean the word that the apostles, Jesus' disciples, wrote down in the Bible and they passed down to us what the gospel is. The apost apostolic word. And you see that there in verse 24, where John says to this church, what you heard from the beginning, uh, or sorry, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So, uh, the main thing that he says, um, what he's saying is, John's saying to this church is the solution to these antichrists who are speaking all kinds of false doctrine is to go back to the thing that you heard from the beginning. Don't move on from the gospel. Don't move on from the basic teaching that they had received at the beginning. But what that tells us is that part of our spirit as Christians is to not be novel. Uh, not, not trying to have something new and novel all the time. You know, I'll tell you, I'm a young pastor. I'm starting a new church. And there's a, there's a temptation as a, even you know, a young guy my age to say, you know what, I'm going to do church better than anyone's ever done it in the history of the world. I'm going to reimagine church. It's, I got new ideas. I got new ideas. We're going to reach new people. And, I mean, first of all, really? You know, 30-year-old guy is going to make up a new church is better than what we had from the beginning and what's been emerging for centuries? I don't think so. So there's a sense of, of having in our, in, our, in our heart a desire to not be novel. And um, the, it, it's, it's kind of conservative. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, I, I'm reading this book called Bad Religion. It's a, it's a kind of a history of, of uh, Christianity in America over the last century. 
And uh, one of the things he talks about is how, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, you had all these denominations that were saying, you know, all the traditional stuff in church about the rituals and the prayers and the, and the doctrine and the, the reading of the word, it's all, um, you know, we've kind of grown out of that. Let's, let's, uh, let's put that away and have some fresh reimaginings of what church should be. And you know what happened? <laughs> All the young people, you know what they started doing in the 60s and 70s? They said, all right, there's nothing traditional here. I'll start going to Hindu gurus and start learning kind of ancient Eastern practices because they wanted something that was actually historic, add some history to it. And I, I actually think that's the, true in Bellingham, you know, a place that's very much not Christian. We, we don't have any historic roots in us. So that's one of the reasons in this church, you know, like Chris was saying, we have a liturgy. We sing hymns that people have been singing for a long time. We have the Lord's Supper every week. It's very, uh, you know, it's, uh, I just preach through books of the Bible. I'm not trying to do something novel. We're trying to do what we had from the beginning. And I'll tell you why that's, it's powerful. is because, you know, uh, St. Augustine, he, in his book, uh, confessions. He had he has this, these prayers throughout that he writes, and I, I remember I read in college confessions, and there's this one prayer where he where he says that God is uh, is is uh, always is never old, and never. Uh, sorry, gosh, I got all mixed up. What is it? I have it here. Um, um, he's he's both always old and always new. God is always old and always new. He's always historic. He's always from the beginning, and yet he's always fresh. Because God is infinite. He, his truth is there's always fresh things to find. There's always, we're never going to exhaust him. We're never going to exhaust the beauty and wonder of the gospel. And so we don't have to move on from it. There's always going to be freshness there. And so uh, what uh, John is saying is we should have a spirit in us that says we don't want to grow, you know, move on. We don't want to depart from what we had from the beginning. But the second thing he says, is first the apostolic word, is also the anointing of the spirit is what guards us from false doctrine. You see this in verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, the anointing, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, a king would be anointed with oil when he became king and put oil on him. And, uh, but it said when Jesus came, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. That was this anointing. And so the anointing that he now shares with us is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Holy Spirit that uh, guides us into all truth. And the Holy Spirit points us to Christ. Now, uh, one, of the things, one of the things he says there, uh, he says, you have no need that anyone should teach you. There's a temptation to think, oh, it's the Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth, so, uh, you know, I guess I, I guess I don't need anyone, I don't need to talk to anyone, it's just me and my Bible, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to uh, have God teach me, and I don't need any teachers. Well, you know, John is here writing a letter saying, you need me to be teaching you, so uh, you're not, just the Spirit isn't enough, you need me to be teaching you. Of course, the Bible says that God's given teachers to the church, and there's people with teaching gifts that we need to teach us. And um, actually, I, I had a friend who uh, who was starting a church, and uh, he kind of got that idea that, you know, I'm not, I, he threw, he had a library full of books, he threw them all away, and he said, I just need my Bible, and I need God to talk to me individually which I think is very dangerous um, because at the same time, I don't think he saw the connection, but he was also saying, I'm finding I don't have any Christian friends anymore. 
And what he was doing by shutting teachers out of his life is he's shutting people out of his spiritual life. And uh, he began to get all kinds of ideas that were very strange. And, um, and I think one of the things uh, uh, to see here is that when he says, you have, uh, you have no need that anyone should teach you, it's not singular you. It's, uh, you know, I know some of you are from the South, right? It's a y'all. Uh, y'all don't need anyone to teach you. You as a community don't need anyone to teach you. Uh, you, uh, you just hold on to what you had from the beginning. It's not just Nate and his Bible by himself coming up with ideas that I don't need any teachers. It's that we don't need any additional teachers beyond just teaching the gospel. We don't need new ideas. And, um, but what he says is that ultimately the way that we come to know the truth of what God is teaching us is the Spirit must uh, convince our hearts, show our hearts. You know, that God has revealed himself in three different ways. He's revealed himself in the Bible through his word. He's revealed himself in the world, in the earth, through what he's created in the universe. And he's also revealed himself uh, through the spirit in our hearts. And these three things, the, the word, the world, and the spirit, they all agree. They all say the same message. So whatever the spirit is telling us is going to confirm what we hear in the gospel. And so it's these two things, the combination of the word of God, the apostolic word, and the anointing of the spirit in our hearts that, that guide us into all truth. That's, that's the path that he has for us. And what we'll find in both those things of what it leads us to, the truth it leads us to is always Jesus. He's the hero, right? We're living in the, in the end, in the last hour, at the end of the story. What is the end of the story? It's Christ. He is the hero who's come. And so as we commit ourselves to our word, we'll never grow out of it as we hold on to what we had from the beginning. So let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit as a community and as a church, that we would never move on from what we had from the beginning in Christ. And we ask that you would guide us into all truth, that you'd give us a love for doctrine, a love for studying your word, and that we would uh, plunge into the depths of our God and the mystery that you are, that you would uh, increase our, our awe, and it would lead us to love you more and to love our neighbor more and, and to worship you and to long for the day that we will be with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.